of us now as we turn to His Word. Let's locate in the Bible, the Old Testament book of Ruth. And we're going to be today concluding our series of the past couple of months through Ruth, with Ruth chapter 4, verses 18 through 22. Ruth chapter 4, verses 18 through 22. I do hope that uh, this series of messages has been helpful and encouraging and has in some way to us all encouraged us and challenged us to return in the places that we must to Bethlehem, to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to walk with Him, to trust Him, to indeed find refuge, rest, and redemption in Him. Let's read Ruth chapter 4, verse 18. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word. We thank you that every word of it is breathed out by you, that it is um, your word for us, that it is profitable. We ask this morning that you would teach us all that you would have us to learn, that you would encourage us uh, according to your grace at work in Jesus Christ. We ask, Lord, that you would um, draw near to us by your Holy Spirit, working in us, fashioning us more in your likeness, that we would be, um, uh, as your children, um, uh, that we would uh, walk in righteousness, uh, justice, and humility with kindness before you. In Jesus' name, amen. At the end of a movie, the credits roll, listing... Many, if not all, of the various people who played a part in the making of the film. I know it's not always all because there was a time I sat through very diligently looking through the credits of a film in which I believed that I had somewhat played a part by unlocking and locking a building for their crash team. Now, um, one of us uh, knows a little more about the industry than anyone, and I don't think that's quite how it works. You might have the site manager who gets a credit, but not the, uh, not, not the guy who actually is lending the, the venue, the, the property. But we, we've, we've all sat and watched through, if, if not for a name, uh, perhaps for one of those after-credit scenes. And before I discovered that you could Google whether or not there was an after-credit scene, I would watch all the way through and then be disappointed that I'd watched uh, you know, three, four, five minutes of names with no after-credits scene. Now you just type it in. Is there a, a post-credits in this film? And um, you can save yourself the pain. There may be at some point in the uh, that the after credit uh, some point in the credits there may be footage that's played along the credits 
um, perhaps a blooper reel or some other silliness. Uh, some films may have scenes that are interspersed within the credits. And so there'll be a few uh, within and a post-credits post, uh, scene. Uh, these perhaps tie up loose ends or they add some context to something that has gone before and perhaps that's a little more highbrow than most of it. Maybe it's just a bit of lighthearted fun just to send people out feeling pretty good. The end credit scene really came into its own in 2008 uh, after the credits for Iron Man where the movie's hero Tony Stark meets Nick Fury who tells him that he's not the only superhero but is part of a bigger universe and introduces him to something called the Avenger Initiative. In that one scene, the movie laid the foundation for a further, now, 32 films. So we can't just write that off as, you know, just an insignificant post-credits. It lays the foundation for 32 films at last count and 23 TV shows and specials. Now, whether you love them or hate them, these stories are unquestionably important in our culture. Now, fast approaching two decades of myth-telling on the big screen. Other filmmakers are not so keen on such scenes. The post-credit scenes, they believe it sort of cheapens it. I can understand that with all of the bright colors and interspersing of uh, comedy and so forth in the MCU films, it can seem to be something that, that oh, it, it suits blockbuster fare, but not the, the more um, serious-minded films, or at least those that would pretend to be more serious-minded. Uh, one filmmaker, Chris Nolan, refuses in all of his films, regardless of their blockbuster status, to use that type of scene. But he always ends his film with a nonetheless fairly attention-grabbing scene that you go out thinking about. Uh, for example, the wobbling top at the end of Inception, which is now hard to believe, but over 10 years old. Uh, it, it keeps people thinking. It keeps people talking. The conversation goes on long after the end credits have ended so that over a decade later, people are still talking about what does that mean? Is it significant? In that case, it does not lay the foundation for something that is to come because that was a standalone film. But it reshapes how we think about what has been. What we have before us in Ruth 4, uh, 18 through 22 is the type of passage that in your Bible reading program for 2024, you may gloss over, you may speed through. It's a list of names. It's the credits. And now with the uh, advantage of internet streaming, you can just sort of put your hand on your device and fast forward to the end of the credits and get to the next story. Well, it's actually much more than that. It is this is a scene in the book. It is the literary equivalent 
of the scenes that I just was talking about from, from movies. It's a genealogy that reaches both to the past before Ruth, in some ways reinterpreting it, putting it in a new light, and reaches into the future after Ruth, laying the foundation for story after story, even beyond the last name that's mentioned. As common in Jewish genealogies, it does not include everyone's name. Generations are missing. But in that culture, there are no grandchildren. There are only parents and their children. There are no grandparents. There are only parents and their children. Thus, Jesus is called son of David, son of Abraham. He is their son by linear descent, even though not immediate parentage. That's very important that you, you, you digest that. You might not think it's important, but there will come a time when you come across an atheist who's trying to disprove or discredit Scripture, and they'll throw some curveballs about the genealogy at the beginning of Matthew and the genealogy in Luke, and they're different. And some years ago, we talked about those differences, and we will do again. I won't do that now. But there are generations that are, for whatever reason... The author omits them so that he can condense things in a way that gets to his point. That's what's happening here. So it's important that you, you notice, if you look at the chronology between Perez and David, there are many more years than can actually be accounted for. Already people had stopped living to ridiculously long ages, old ages. Uh, certainly, while it might preach a good message, Rahab does not seem to be the immediate mother of Boaz when you do the math. That does not mean that she was not the mother of Boaz. We have to step into that world. We have to get to grips with that culture and understand how they understood parentage and thereby heritage. The author is proving some points that we're going to see. It's not accidental. It is intentional. It is meant to highlight specific individuals in the family that would ultimately produce Israel's greatest king, a man after God's own heart, a human prototype, if you will, of the Messiah. Look at those verses again, those words, that list of names. It concludes with David, the shepherd boy who would become king. The whole purpose of this, this story up to this point even is to tell the backstory to David. On Sunday afternoons, we had a series of backstories, and we were talking about Lot and his daughters, and we were talking about um, Judah and Tamar and, and, uh, and um, uh, Moab and Rahab and Judges and all of that. And all the, all the time, the plot twist was coming that actually Rahab, not right, Ruth, is the backstory to David. No, I'm not, I'm not going to go into a Life of David series now. Not yet. That time will come. But this book is leading us to the king, to the, 
the anointed king, the one that God had appointed. And we, we, we can even just by looking at these verses and referencing its wider context, learn about this king. He was a king of prophecy. Do you remember the second backstory sermon? Some of you were here. Others were uh, listening later in the week online. Jacob prophesied over Judah. Judah was not the firstborn. He was not the secondborn. He was not the thirdborn. He had no normal, cultural, legal right or expectation that he would lead his people. He was the fourthborn. And Jacob prophesied over him of all his brothers and sisters that he would be the one to reign. Genesis 41, 49 rather, records, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Moses would later say in Deuteronomy 17, When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it, and you dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. This king, Moses said, should learn and keep the law of God, not turning to the right or to the left, but staying focused on God and His ways over the ways of sinful people. David is the brother from the tribe of Judah who would be appointed king according not only to the people's choice, but to God's own choice. You may recall from the story of David, and some of you may not, this is all new to you, that David was not the people's first choice. They chose someone named Saul. And while God was providential in that choice, it's very clear that the people chose Saul based on what they saw. How did he look? He was basically tall, dark, and handsome. And so they went with him. There's an interesting backstory to how he becomes the, the king. It's all a bit bizarre, actually. But he's the king. And he's a very troubled man. And although he looks strong, he's weak. He rebels against God. He rebels against God in a, a rather interesting way. Sacrifice. He, he was told to destroy certain enemies of the Lord, and he didn't do it. And he said it was because of sacrifice. Samuel says, God wants you to obey. And maybe, maybe that's not the focus of my message, but that's something you need to hear as you enter the new year. You're thinking about the sacrifices that you must make or the various sacrifices that, that uh, you think you will make in the year ahead uh, that, that please the Lord. And thereby, you're not actually finding your refuge in the Lord or your rest in the Lord. And you're definitely not obeying the Lord, but you're seeking some other mechanistic means to get right with God when He's already made you right with Him in Jesus Christ. And you must trust in Him. That's by the by. 
Saul is rejected. As all of this is happening, Samuel, the last of the judges, the first of the prophets, is, lay, is, is laying hands upon David and taking oil and anointing his head as king. It will be years before he's recognized nationally as king. It will be years before his coronation. He will be hunted by Saul. All of 1 Samuel tells this story of, of the man who would be king running from the man who is king until the man who is king is surrounded by the enemy, sees no way out, asks someone to kill him, and when that man won't do it, falls on his sword. He dies. A tragic, lonely character without help or hope. But the Redeemer of Israel lives. The one who will unite the tribes. The one who will reign and reign well. David. He is the king of prophecy. David will serve the Lord. Not only do we see in David a king of prophecy, we see in him a king of providence. You see, prophecy requires providence to reach fulfillment. You, you have another word in the word providence if you don't know what I'm talking about. Provide. And providence is the way God as king interacts with the world he has made, not least to provide, to organize, to order, to shape your lives, your histories. And that's what he's doing in the story of David. Prophecy requires providence to reach fulfillment. God, having delivered a word, will be faithful to accomplish it, but must make the way, must engage with the story, must weave His thread through our tapestry, and that is ultimately the purpose of genealogies like this anyway. To demonstrate how God orders our mess according to His design. And how God blesses our broken roads towards His destination. I want you to pause and think about your life for a moment. Sometimes we, we don't actually stop and reflect on our life. And reflect on everything that has led to us being here today. The exact sequence of events. Just for a moment. I want you to think back before you were even alive. Did you ever hear any stories? Do you know anything of your heritage before you? Your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents. Keep going. Go back. All of us have varied stories and histories. Some know a great deal, some don't. And sometimes that in and of itself tells a story. God has been at work in each of us and in everything to get us to this point now, today. Do we, do we realize that? Do we realize the significance of that? Does that rest at all heavily on your conscience? I'm not saying in a condemning way, but in, a, in an awesome way that fills you with holy fear of God. That you are alive today because of millennia 
of human history that have been ordered just so. One little thing. Think about the frailty of your life. One little thing that could have gone wrong in the frailty of your ancestors' lives and you wouldn't be here. For you to be alive today, a a world of history had to occur first. A chain of specific people in exact places at precise times with certain stories that link together for you to exist as you are. And furthermore, for you to be present here today. One little thing different in that chain of events. It's quite likely that you wouldn't be here. I'm not saying you wouldn't be alive, although that may very well be true. But you wouldn't be here worshiping the Lord, or at least not worshiping the Lord in this place, with these people, in this fellowship. That's the providence of God. It's the way God orders all things according to His good plan and purpose. The smallest detail, different. And the world, never mind your world, will be a different place. Sin is a transgression against God's law. Trespassing on His boundaries, rebelling against Him. And this this story tells us not only about sinners, but as we explore the lives of these sinners, we get to know a bit about their sins, and we have already done so with some of the characters in Ruth's story We have messy people creating a mess, and yet above everything, God is weaving together a a perfect tapestry according to His good design. Don't think that God can't and doesn't use, never mind you and other people, Don't think that God can't and doesn't use even your sins and the sins of others to weave together the story of your redemption. It's been said that the only thing that we contribute to our sin, uh, to our salvation, is our sin. But you did contribute your sin. No sin. No salvation, no sinners, no salvation. Jesus came to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And some, for some of you, your testimonies are such that you had to go down low for God to bring you up. What if you had been excellent in all of your ways, humanly speaking, but far from God? What if everything was neatly put together in your life Accept your relationship with God. Would you you be here? There are some people that maybe that, that could be their story. I would argue that that is in spite of all of that situation. God has to reveal to us our sin, our sinfulness. And as He does so, He shows us the beauty and glory of His salvation. And that's how we're at where we're at today. David has built his life. No, he hasn't built his life. God has built David's life on a foundation of sinners and their sins that were nonetheless necessary to bring about God's chosen king. 
Maybe you're, you're, still not, you're still not getting it. If Judah, look at the verses. Perez, it doesn't say it, but Perez is the son of Judah. We read that story in the book of Genesis several weeks ago. If Judah had not been actively involved in the abuse, abduction, and trafficking of his brother, we could follow one thread of that story and we could say that he and his children never would have survived but would have starved. To say this is not to in any way excuse sin, but rather to exalt the Savior who deals with the world as it is, a place of sinners. But let's follow another thread. If Judah had not so horribly mistreated his brother and the family dynamics been increasingly fragmented and poisonous, he might never have left the covenant community of his family to run with the Canaanites. Because it was after these things, after the stuff with Joseph happened, that we see him leave the camp. He goes away. And what this was about, it's not specified. But it's obvious that he is not with the Lord's people. And he's not with this family. He's not living righteously. Doesn't excuse the sin, but it exalts the Savior. He, he might never have met the woman who would mother his children. They never would have been born, and his eldest, then his second sons, never would have married Tamar. If Tamar hadn't grasped for right to be done by her in a albeit desperate and sinful way, she never would have given birth to Perez and Zerah. If Perez had not muscled his way past Zerah in the birth canal, his life and the chain of events thereafter might have looked very different. Because being the eldest, even the eldest of twins, affected one's life trajectory. No Judah and all of his nonsense. No Tamar and the stunts that she pulled. No Perez. No Boaz. No Boaz. No redemption of Ruth and Naomi. No redemption of Ruth. No David. That's to say nothing about all of the other threads of providence. No Elimelech leaving the covenant community with his family to go to cursed Moab then there's no Malon and Ruth. And there's no Malon and Ruth, and there's, there's no death of the menfolk, likely no return to Bethlehem. Um, uh, there never would have been a leave from Bethlehem to begin with. Even still, no David. No David, no king. No, no Davidic king, no Messiah. Think about Ruth the Moabitess. What's the thread of providence in her story? We've talked all about that. But it goes right back to the very beginning when a girl decided to get her father drunk in the cave and sexually assault him. That's legally what happened. While he was incapacitated, not having a clue what was going on, and got pregnant with Moab, 
No Moab, no Ruth. No Moab, consequentially, no Messiah. Providence. This collage of characters and wild stories sounds much more like the Jeremy Kyle show, if you still remember that. Um, some of you are like, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, fortunately, exploitative daytime TV does seem to be a, a little more of a thing of the past. But this isn't the Jeremy Kyle show. It's the Jesus Christ show. This is the life story of multiple people that lands us with Jesus Christ, our Messiah, our Savior. God knows exactly what He's doing. He know, he's not surprised by any of this. God's not overwhelmed by seeing something. Oh, and now, now I have to respond. How am I going to respond? All of this is part of God's plan. All of it is in the hands of a sovereign God who does all things well. Our king is not only a king of prophecy, but a king of providence. But also a king of power. Prophecy and providence lead to a king. And we might say, well, a king of power, it goes without saying. Does it, though? Let's be honest. I mean... Did you watch the King's speech this past week? Were you overawed by the power, the authority of our reigning sovereign? This king is not a constitutional monarch. This, this king is, is, is not a symbolic national figure that leads to intense debate about what is the purpose of you exactly. Um, this is... This is a king of real and authentic power and authority. He's a king from Bethlehem who will unite the fragmented tribes of Israel into one nation, will conquer Jerusalem and make it the capital, will bring the tabernacle into that city so that the dwelling place of the Lord is at the heart of the people of the Lord, and then will make plans indeed for the building of a temple to the Lord so that there is no question that the dwelling place of the Lord is there in the midst of His people. He will lead His people to worship the Lord God. But real power, the best power, is not seen in what someone does but in who someone is and how people respond naturally to that. As was prophesied over Obed, his name would be great and he would do great things. Jacob had prophesied of this power. In Genesis 49, uh, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares Rouse him. The uh, story C.S. Lewis wrote, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, comes to mind, where there's this um, myth mythical world that's created to parallel the gospel story, to point us to the gospel story. And at the heart of this mythical realm, Narnia is a great lion the Christ figure of the story, and the lion is called Aslan. And when these uh, English children are transported to this mythical world where it is always winter but never Christmas, where uh, there's been this, this long 
time waiting for Aslan, but he's not, he's not come, he's not appeared. They um, are hosted by a, a very sweet couple, very abnormal. Uh, they were beavers, right? And uh, these, these um, beavers are chatting to them about this great lion that they're waiting for with great expectation. And uh, they hear it's a lion and they ask, is it, is it safe? And Mr. Beaver says, safe? He's a lion. Of course he's not safe. But he's good. He's the king. And that's the type of king that old Jacob prophesied over Judah. Well, while this uses the brute strength and ferocious majesty of the king of beasts to describe Judah, there are two attendant attributes of the power of this king. I want you to see that. He's a king from and for all people. Jacob said, to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And we see something of that unique power even in this list of names. We've already noted the unusual circumstances of Perez's conception. Do bear in mind that we had not only a, a wayward um, uh, Hebrew father, but uh, a wily Gentile Canaanite pagan mother. It gets better. Aminadab. Can we know anything about these people? Search the Scriptures. Aminadab was the father-in-law of Aaron, high priest of Israel during the Exodus. They kept good records. They knew what they were doing. And, and this person knows what he's doing when he's writing these names. Aminadab, father-in-law to the high priest of the people of Israel. Nashon was his son, Aaron's brother-in-law. He was the leader of the tribe of Judah during the Exodus itself. When the Israelite encampments are listed in the book of Numbers, Nashon and his people are given first assignment. They are to encamp directly to the east of the tabernacle. It is said east towards the sunrise. Salmon's wife is not mentioned here in the genealogy, but she is mentioned in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 5. She's there named as Rahab the prostitute of Jericho, who sheltered the spies, who was spared the destruction that came to her city and was accepted into the covenant community of God's people as a woman who believed God and was counted among the righteous. Salmon and Rahab. And then we've... We've talked about Boaz and Ruth. Ruth, the Moabitess, who left the curse of Moab and embraced the promises of God in Israel and gets together with a noble Jewish man of Bethlehem. Everyone from Jewish princes with priestly connections to Gentile prostitutes and pagans are in the lineage of this king. Does that not tell us something about the power of this king? Strength in the diversity of his heritage. The people that he represents in the past and the people that he represents in the present and will represent in the future. Thus, Jacob prophesied over Judah, Judah, your brothers, 
he says, shall, shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Which leads us to another thing. He's to be a king of praise. A king to be praised. Jacob prophesied that he would be praised. But even as he prophesied that he would be praised, he prophesied that the obedient peoples of the nations would come to him. And as they come to him, they would bring him tribute. So this king will bring together people from all around the world to worship him. Wait a second. We're now drifting increasingly away from what is right and proper of a human king, even David. Are we not? It never was just about David, was it? I said David was the prototype. And David would curry favor with the nations, but not in a wrong way. Remarkably, we, we see every time their leaders previously were looking to the nations, trying to be like the nations. David was looking to the Lord, trying to be like the Lord, and the nations got on board. So, so that when he's made preparations for the temple to be built, Solomon's building the temple, and you have kings who, you're like, what is your relationship with, with God and His people? They're sending precious woods and metals and ornaments to build the temple of the Lord. Because... The prophecy is partially fulfilled, but not completely. The, king has, the, the kingship has begun, but the great king is not yet here. All of these things would be true of David, but the genealogy recorded is not simply a history. History is saying these are facts. It's a testimony. It's not look at David, but look at God. That, that's why this genealogy is here. And that's why the names that are listed are, are, are specifically chosen. Look at God. It's not so much David reigns, but the Lord reigns. It's the Lord who was speaking through prophecy. It was the Lord who was acting in His providence to guide the events of history. The Lord was the real power behind the throne. David knew it. He sang about it because the praise directed to him was simply redirected to God. Most of the Psalms. David. Read Psalm 145, for example, and there you will find a poem, each line of which begins with an, a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It is an A to Z of giving God praise. And it specifically revolves around the idea that the Lord is King. David is king, but he's saying, verse 1, I will extol you, my God and my king, and bless your name forever and ever. I want you to listen to these selected verses through the lens of all of the stories that we've been reading from Genesis, Numbers, Joshua and Judges, Ruth. I will extol you, my God and king. And bless your name forever and ever. Verse 4. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Verses 8 and 9. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all 
And His mercy is over all that He has made. Verse, verse 14, The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. 15, The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. It's sounding almost like David was reflecting on his heritage, even the story of his grandmother Ruth. You open your hand and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all His ways, kind in all His works, near to all who call on Him, to all who call on Him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear Him. He also hears their cry and He saves them. The Lord preserves all who love Him, but all the wicked He will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord. Let all flesh bless His holy name forever and ever. There's a greater king. There's a higher throne. This story was never even about David. It was always about the Lord. Do you remember Elimelech, Naomi's dead husband, who took the family off to Moab? We can still learn a lesson from Elimelech. His name continues to preach a sermon. Even for all the wrong he, he did. His name means, my God is King. And that's the story of Ruth. The one we call Lord. The one who dwelt with us. The one of whom it is written, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The one who is called the Christ. Why does it feel like we walk in a world full of strangers? How did we stray so far from that miracle in the manger? When did we lose sight of that star? Why must we live lost in the dark? The late country music singer and songwriter Kenny Rogers asked those questions at the beginning of one of his Christmas songs, Back to Bethlehem. They're questions that we may ask of our own lives and of those around us as we think about our life through the lens of His. His prophetic fulfillment, His providence, His power. Journeying through Ruth and the related backstories over now 13 sermons, we might place ourselves with the times and places of which we have read and ask similar questions. Perhaps it's easier to think about those stories than it is to think about our own. Sat in Lot's cave as his daughter's plot and action, a scheme to get pregnant by their father, in the unnecessary fear that the salvation of humanity depended on them, and the unfortunate hope that it could be achieved through incestuous rape. Why must we live lost in the dark? Stood by the roadside as widowed, 
forgotten, neglected, and rejected Tamar feels she has no recourse to justice, no access to redemption, no option but to disguise herself as a prostitute and wait for her father-in-law, whose character she knows, to pass by. Why must we live lost in the dark? Walking with the Israelites in the plains of Moab as they face attempts to curse them from without and see those curses turn into blessings. But then they successfully curse themselves from within by embracing sin and enduring great sorrow. Why must we live lost in the dark? Surveying the walls of Jericho and finding only one household that can be spared, that has demonstrated not only fear of God, but faith in God and shown hospitality to God's people. And that is not the righteous of the city. It is a prostitute. Rahab. Why must we live lost in the dark? Or maybe you're opening a parcel in the tribal lands of Israel and you're discovering it is part of a woman's horribly abused body and it's sent with an attachment, an appeal for justice. Look at where we are as a nation. Look at what we have become as a people. Will there be any justice? What are we going to do about this? Because there's no king. And there's only people who do what feels right, not what is truly righteous. Why must we live lost in the dark? Spiritual compromise, political chaos, national crisis characterize our land now. And certainly Israel then. A man and his family wandered away from the covenant community of God's people, already vulnerable, making themselves all the more vulnerable, leaving Bethlehem Ephrathah, the fruitful house of bread, in the land of promise, because the cupboards of the house were empty and the promise of the land seemed unfulfilled. Seeking life, they ran into the dark clutches of death. Why must we live? Lost in the dark. The story of Ruth tells us that we don't have to. There is a way back for those who have wandered. There there is a new way for those who never were there to start with. There is a covenant for those once cursed. There is a king who calls all to come to him. Even the one who humbled himself and was born and laid in an animal feeding trough in Bethlehem. Remaining what he was, God, he became what he was not, man. So that he could not only reign over us, but truly represent us. Old Simeon stood in the temple. Zeth reminded us of that at our Christmas Eve Gathering last Sunday night, Simeon, old man, waiting, waiting, waiting. A theme of Ruth, waiting. Holding the infant Jesus in his hands, he knew what he was waiting for had come. 
My eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. What I've been waiting for is here. You can let me die now, God. I've seen it all, even the best. In the words of that Kenny Rogers song, let's follow the light back to Bethlehem. Father, we ask that we would see in Jesus your salvation, light for revelation to the Gentiles, those who were far away, light for glory to your people Israel, those who were near. For all of us, the near, the far, may we be gathered into Jesus, gathered in to our spiritual Bethlehem, a fruitful house of bread, and in an eternal land of promise. We pray, Lord, that you would refresh us, that you are you are king. Prophecy tells it. Your providence has confirmed it. Your power continues to demonstrate it. So work in us, we pray. Redeeming us. Ransoming us. Healing us. Restoring us. Forgiving us. Bringing us into your family. And keeping us there. In Jesus' name, amen.